Welcome to Sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance, and we are going to get into our sermon series this morning as we journey through the book of Luke. I invite you to take a Bible out and open to Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on a bit of a road trip. He's going from Galilee in the north and road tripping it south to Jerusalem. And last week we began a a window, a conflict, really, a window of conflict where Jesus is on the road and, and, and he is confronted. He is confronted by people who are leveling accusations at him. And today we're actually picking up the back half of this conflict. So uh, have a Bible open, Luke chapter 11, beginning verse 29. And if you're using one of the blue pew Bibles and you're not sure yet how to find your way in the scriptures, you can find our passage on page 844. We're going to read this together and then we're going to dig in, okay? Luke 11, beginning in verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, I thank you this morning for these words that your Holy Spirit inspired Luke uh, to pen. And I pray uh, that you, Holy Spirit, would come and illumine our hearts and minds, um, that you would turn our eyes to Jesus, that we would see him standing here in our midst, speaking to us uh, and challenging us and calling us into the life that you want us to live. We pray this, Jesus. In your mighty name, amen. If you were starting a world movement, if you were starting a world movement and you were the leader of that movement and you had a platform, you had crowds of people gathered around you, kind of like Jesus has in this uh, story, as the crowds increased, if you had crowds in front of you, what would you say to them? What would you do? You know, you would think that that would be the moment to to do something awesome, like to shock and awe them. If you have some weird talent, uh, you might do that. But Jesus here, 
when he has all these crowds gathered to him, he has this unique opportunity. He could do the deed of power that would convince people without a doubt to follow him. But what does he do? He says, this is a wicked generation. Not great PR, eh? Jesus uh, emerges from this, this, this conflict. He's actually just right in the middle of it. And what he's just done is called out this generation. He's called them evil. And he's not just retaliating. Remember last week, we looked at a passage where they basically called him evil. They said, hey, it's by the prince of demons that you're driving out demons. He's not just, you know, lobbing the mud back at them. He is making a statement. He's making a statement about a wicked generation And then later what he's going to turn our eyes to see is what it might mean to be a radiant generation. And that's how we're going to kind of enter into this passage this morning. Jesus has this platform. It's this great opportunity. And in a very serious tone, he says, this is a wicked generation. Why? Because it seeks for a sign. Remember back in verse 16, if you just look back a few sentences in chapter 11, in verse 16, it says, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. What's so wrong about asking for a sign? Why is that so bad? Well, notice in verse 16, the second word in that verse is that they tested him. They're not being upfront in their asking for a sign. And this word tested actually only appears in Luke twice in the whole gospel. It happens here. But the first time it occurs is way back in Luke chapter 3 when Jesus is out in the wilderness and the devil tests him. And what Luke is doing is he's drawing a straight line from that moment when the devil is testing Jesus, drawing a straight line to this moment. And so why is it bad to ask for a sign? In this case, it's because they're testing him. They're, They're really rebellious against God. It's a wicked generation because it's rebellious. And this isn't anything new for Israel, God's people. It's not anything new for you and I. Uh, Our default sinful tendency is to want things our own way. And the thought of surrendering to God as a higher power usually isn't like the first thing we wake up in the morning wanting to do. But this is not the first time God has charged his people with rebellion either. In Jeremiah chapter 5, we read, And this is God speaking to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, announce this to the the descendants of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Remember this motif that Jesus has picked up to talk about spiritual dullness and blindness. Verse 22, should you not fear me, declares the Lord. Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier that it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. What God is doing here is he is reminding his people that he is the holy and sovereign God. Should you not fear me? Should you not tremble before me? Instead, but these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God. 
who gives autumn and spring rains and season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings, says God, have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait, like men who snare birds, like those who set traps to catch people. This text is written long before this scene of conflict with Jesus, but it describes it perfectly. They're trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to snare him. Only this time it seems like they've snared a catch that's a bit too big for them to handle. As Jesus describes this wicked generation, first it's rebellious, but second of all, it's unbelieving. Why is it unbelieving? Because, because they're asking for a sign. They're saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, you're here. You're gonna have to prove yourself to us, buddy. And what that question does, what that demand does is it shows their own unbelief. They think, if you can give us unmistakable evidence, we'll believe you. If you can prove to us beyond a doubt, we'll give you our faith. But is that how faith works? If you need to see in order to have faith, then what you have is no longer faith. It's unbelief. Faith is by definition in something unseen. Look at what it says in Hebrews 1.1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so these these people, and, and sometimes we today, we can fall into the trap, especially in an, in an age of skepticism. We can fall into the trap of thinking that seeing is believing, right? You've heard that, that phrase before, seeing is believing. We, that's a trap. It's not true. In fact, George MacDonald, he was a great Scottish uh, poet, writer, and pastor. In his fairy tale, The Princess and the Goblin, he said, seeing is not believing, it's only seeing. (laughs) And he's not just being Captain Obvious here. He's making a profound statement that faith or belief always requires a step beyond what we see. Faith always requires a step beyond what we see. Uh, We need to make a decision about what's being presented to us as a miracle, right? So something happens in your life or you read about it in the scriptures and it's something uh, that, that is beyond the ordinary, right? This doesn't usually happen. You need to then decide, is there a loving will behind this? Is this God or is it just coincidence, right? Is it just like a random anomaly that happens in the otherwise steady course of human events? Have I been taken in by some kind of trick or illusion? See what I'm saying? We need to decide about what it is we see. And we have all kinds of ways of of thinking about some other reason something happened than that it was God. That's how it is with Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus was motivated in doing his signs not out of a desire to prove to anyone his goodness or his godness. You follow me? Jesus was not motivated by a desire to prove that he was God in doing his signs. That would mean he was using people's misery 
as a stepping stone to gaining power. Jesus was motivated to heal people. He was motivated to drive out demons. Why? Because he genuinely loved people and wanted them to be set free. And then when he does these things and we see him doing these things, we then need to decide, is this God or is this Satan like last week? The decision always comes to us. Jesus presents himself to us and we need to decide, is this God's king taking back God's world? And if you decide that, that's a decision of faith. If you choose to see Jesus in that light, you have taken a step of faith. For example, we think of the central symbol of Christianity. What's the central symbol of Christianity throughout the ages? The cross, right? The cross. With my eyes, I I can read the accounts of Jesus uh, hanging on the cross and I can picture him hanging on a cross. And then I have a decision to make, right? I can decide that what I am seeing is a disgraced and humiliated rebel who had some nice ideas, maybe had some leadership skills, maybe a charismatic personality, but ultimately uh, got what he had coming to him as he foolishly opposed his religious leaders and as he disturbed the Roman peace. You see, it takes faith to look at the cross and see in Jesus the self-giving of God and God's victory over sin and death. It takes faith to look at the cross and see it not as foolishness and weakness, but as God's wisdom and power. It takes faith to see in the cross my only hope for reconciliation and peace with God. See what I'm getting at? Faith always requires a decision. We can never be coerced by an unmistakable miracle or sign. And then what happens as we make that decision in faith about Jesus, there's this unavoidable implication that I now need to get in line, right? I need to get in line with this Jesus that I am starting to see is the true and living God. I need to commit myself. I need to stake my life on this Jesus. I need to follow him with everything that I have. Every miracle of God presents us with a decision to make. Will I believe this is God or will I not? Now on God's side, his spirit is always at work in drawing us. His spirit is at work in wanting to reveal Jesus to you and I for the first time, for the second time, for the hundredth time and in deeper ways. But what God will never do is he will never ever bypass our will to decide. He will never uh, compel us. He'll never twist twist our arm. Why? Because he wants our love for him to be free. He wants our love for him to be genuine and not coerced. Sight can never stand in the place of faith. And when we make demands of God, and here I want you to start thinking about your own life, when we make demands of God for a sign that we can see, we're not exposing God's weakness. We're not exposing um, you know, him for not caring. That's often how people approach it, right? People clamor, God, if you were really love and really good, you would do this, this, and this. 
We want to see this as if that were to, to somehow soil God or make him look weak. You see, that kind of thinking doesn't expose God. It exposes us. It exposes our own unbelief. You know, these days it seems like my kids are never in school. There are teacher strikes, and then there are PA days, and I think they went to school all of four days in like the last two weeks. And so when you're a parent of young kids, uh, you need to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with, you know, these eight hours of daylight? And so my wife, Maria, and I were talking about maybe going to Jungle Adventure. It's like an indoor playground at Woodside Square Mall. And Zoe, our daughter, who's five, overheard us. She overheard us discussing jungle adventure. You know what she said? She said to Maria, you're the best mommy ever if you let us go to jungle adventure. You're the best mommy ever if you let us go to jungle adventure. She's five and she's totally unaware of what she's doing. Maybe she is aware, I don't know. But, but, but she's goading her mother, right? She, she, she's trying to goad her mother. You know, here's the reality. What I want to say to Zoe is, your mommy is the best mommy ever because she gave up her body for you for nine months of nausea and bloatedness. That makes her the best mommy ever. She's the best mommy ever because she always puts her needs before yours. She's the best mommy ever because even in moments when you are screaming at her because she needs to discipline you, she takes your fury and responds to you in grace and love because she loves you. She's not the best mommy ever because she let you go to jungle adventure that one time. It's such a cheap take on what it means to be a good mother. And when we seek signs, like these people were seeking signs, when we say, God, you're, gonna, you're a good God if... It shows that to some degree we have a cheap take on what it means for God to be God. Do we ever try to goad God like that? God, if you want my faith, you'll do this, that, or the other thing. I'll obey you once you've done so and so. God, I, I'm gonna, you know, I'll give my tithes and my offerings and I'll be a generous person once, you know, I, you help me land that six-figure job. Seven figures would be great. I'll settle for six. Do we make demands of God like that? As if, as if he owed us something. There are lots of little ways we can do this. And maybe on one level, you know, they seem harmless. But when we bargain with God like that, it shows, it exposes that we have a small view of him. That we really don't believe in his goodness, and in his greatness. Because here's the truth. God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. But in the most astonishing display of grace and love, he has given us absolutely everything. He's given us the son he loves. He's given us, it says in Ephesians 1.3, every blessing in the spiritual realms in Christ. He has given us, it says in 2 Peter 1.3, everything we need for a godly life. Are there any ways we act as if that's not enough? 
He's given us everything. Are there any ways we act as if that is not enough? What about those of us who may be sitting here this morning and you feel like your faith is holding on by a thread and you're genuinely crying out to God, you want to see something. You want to see deliverance in some kind of area in your life. You want him to intervene. What about that? Is that wrong? It's different. You're not seeking a sign. You're crying out to God at your point of need and you're reaching out in faith. You're saying, you are my only hope and unless you intervene, I'm done for. And if that's you this morning, you can take comfort from the words about Jesus in Isaiah that say, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out when we come to him with our little faith with our flickering faith, he is gentle and he is good. But when we come to him demanding things as if he owed us, seeking to test him because we don't want to yield ourselves in faith, what does he say to the wicked generation? The sign they will get is the sign of Jonah. The sign they will get is the sign of Jonah. What on earth does that mean? Remember the story of Jonah from the Old Testament? Guy gets swallowed by a fish. Um, It's not really about him getting swallowed by a fish. It's about God sending Jonah to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the biggest and baddest empire the world had yet known into that day. They were Gentiles right outside of God's people, and they were actually Israel's enemies. They had done horrendous things to God's people, um, Here's one, pic- or sorry. Here's one picture of uh, the Assyrian conquest of the city of Lashish, which is an Israelite city, uh, right here. Um, these were, uh, this is art that, can be fa- that was found in a palace in Nineveh. And so in the king's palace, there was art on the walls detailing the king's brutal military conquest. In this first picture, it's a, it's a bit graphic. Um, here are Israelite people being stretched out by Assyrians, um, we're going to skin them alive. And here are Israelites being impaled. Okay? The reason I share this is because Jonah was sent to the worst people. And it's understandable, right? The story of Jonah, he runs in the opposite direction. I probably would have too if I had been sent to these people. But he gets sent to these people who are so far from God, Israel's like deepest, bitterest enemies. And what happens when he goes to them is completely surprising. What happens is he preaches a five-word sermon. Eight words in English, five Hebrew words. He says to them, this big, brad, brutal empire, one little man saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Nothing more. Nothing about God, nothing about their wickedness, no call to repent. But what happens? This entire city totally and wholeheartedly repents. The king calls a fast. He's like, nobody eat any food. Put on really itchy clothes. And the king himself sat in ashes to abase himself. Even the cows repented in Nineveh. The sign of Jonah to the Ninevites was actually not a sign as they thought. The sign of Jonah to the Ninevites was a call to repentance. 
the sign of Jonah to the Ninevites was a call to repentance. And Jesus says to Israel in this conflict, your most brutal enemy is going to rise up and they're going to judge you. And they're going to condemn you because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They did what they were supposed to do when God speaks. But here I am. Right? Here's Jesus, the word of God made flesh, greater than King Solomon and way greater than Jonah. Here he is, not just giving a, a, a crappy five-word sermon. He's demonstrating the kingdom in signs. He is teaching at length about what the kingdom is all about, and they will not recognize the voice of God. God Almighty is speaking to them, and they don't have ears to hear. So what they get is not what they've asked for. What they get is a call to repent. Because until they repent of their rebellion and unbelief, there's nothing that can be done for them. There's nothing that can be done for them. And in asking them to repent, Jesus is asking them to do uh, two things. Repentance is an act of surrender. Repentance means, uh, in a very basic way, that if, if I'm walking one way, to repent would mean I need to turn around 180 degrees and walk the other way. And in order to do that, I need to surrender and own the fact that I've been walking in the wrong direction. I need to humble myself, surrender, so that I can turn around and walk in the right direction. That is key for repentance. The second thing about repentance that I want to highlight for us today is that repentance is a daily thing. Repentance isn't just a one-time thing. You know, I repented 10 years ago and believed on the name of the Lord Jesus and now I'm a Christian and I've not needed to do it since. That's not how repentance works in the Christian life. Repentance is daily and it's ongoing. Uh, yesterday morning, we were trying to get our kids out of the house. Uh, and with three young kids, that can be like a 20-minute venture. Um, but my wife, Maria, told Eli, like, before we go, could you brush your teeth? And what Eli said was so funny. He said, but I already brushed my teeth yesterday. And it was like, oh, buddy, it's like a daily thing, you know? Uh, probably and hopefully like more than once a day, we're working with him on that. It's the same with repentance. It's a a daily thing. It's not like, you know, I brushed my teeth yesterday and that's going to carry me through the week. It's a daily thing. I mean, Jesus put it in the prayer that he asks his disciples to pray every day. Right? The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's repentance. But repentance isn't just in that one line. It's actually shot throughout the prayer. How can I pray, hallowed be thy name, unless I am repenting of my stubborn need to bring glory to my own name? How can I pray, thy kingdom come, unless I am repenting of the drive to build my own little kingdom? How can I pray thy will be done unless I am repenting and surrendering my will to his will? You see how that works. Repentance is just shot through the Lord's prayer. It's a necessary and daily habit 
for us in the Christian life. And let me tell you, I have come to love repenting. I have come to love repenting. Why? Because I know that when I repent, and what I've experienced is that when I I come clean to God and turn away from the many failures and sins I've stumbled into, I'm set free. In repentance, I'm reminded of the finished work of the cross and of the grace of adoption and that I don't need to carry the weight of my sin and failure a moment longer. Repentance is a joy. Repentance is a gift. It's a necessary daily habit for us. And it's actually vital if we are going to become a radiant generation. It's vital if we are going to become a radiant church, which is what Jesus then focuses on in the second half of our passage. What Jesus turns to now in verses 33 to 36 is he starts discussing light and lamps. And at first, probably like the first 10 times I read this, I was like, what's the connection? Right? Wicked generation. When you light a lamp, no, the connection is this. In the first, he's describing what it looks like to be a darkened generation. In the second, he's describing what it looks like to be radiant. And this is what God intended his people to be all along. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says, and this is God talking to his people, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This was Israel's design. Israel was designed to be a light. But they had failed. They had turned to darkness. And what's happening in the New Testament is that Jesus picks up this thread of light first in himself. Israel had failed to be the light. Now Jesus comes from Israel as a new Israel, he himself being the true light, the true radiance of God's glory, entering into the darkness of the world to bring the light of God and then through his church to send that light to the ends of the earth. The church, you and I, Look around at one another. That's our calling, that we would be radiant, that we would be a light in this world, shining with the brilliance of Christ. That's a cool job description, isn't it? Your job is to be radiant. I want to be radiant. Now, I want to underline three things that we learn about being a radiant generation from this section. And these are most certainly personal in their application, but I want to emphasize that these are also collective and corporate in nature because Jesus has been talking about a generation of people that's more than one. Now he's talking about what it means to be a radiant people. That's us together, okay? So first thing, a radiant generation exists for the benefit of others. Look at the end of verse 33. Instead of hiding it under a bowl, and we'll look at that in a sec, They put it on a stand. So you put a a light on a stand. Why? So that those who come in may see the light. It's pretty basic, but it's right there. The point of lighting a light is so that your guests can see one another and can see where they are. This is an image of hospitality and generosity and love. And it means that we exist for the benefit of others. I mean, a a little demonstration. When we host people at our house, um, all the lights are on. 
I, I, right? When people aren't coming over, I try to keep the lights off. You want to save that hydro bill. But when people are coming over, you know, you turn the outside light on, you turn the front light on, you, everything is lit up. Why? Because I'm hosting people. I want them to be able to see. It's, it's for their benefit. It's not for mine. I know my way in my own house. I don't need the light on. But I turn it on for them. A radiant generation exists for the benefit of others. That means that we as the church, we're not primarily here for ourselves. We're here first for God and his glory, but then we're here for the good of others. We're here to be a blessing. And within every church, there can be this inward pull to do what we do, not for the sake of others, but for the sake of us and our own. Right? We want things to be neat and tidy. We want things to be all in order. We want things to be, feel comfortable for who? Me. Not for the person walking in who, who's searching for meaning in life. And we need to be reminded this morning that we can easily lose sight of that mission, that we're here for those who aren't yet here. You and I are here for those who aren't yet worshiping with us. They're in your building. They're, they're in the mall across the road. They're, they're on the bus. That's who we're here for. Our mission is to those who have not yet encountered the love of good and the good news of Jesus Christ. And a radiant church allows Jesus to confront our me-first mentality. He, he enables us to get us out of ourselves to consider how we might be a blessing to others as they enter here and as we go out into the world. Secondly, a radiant generation takes risks. Verse 33 opens with Jesus saying, nobody lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Now there's only two reasons you would put it under a bowl. The first reason is that you're a particularly surly and vindictive person and you just don't want anyone else to see the light. The second reason is that you're afraid the light is going to get blown out, right? You try to shelter the light by putting it under a bowl. This wasn't an airtight bowl in that day. It was more of a basket, right? You're trying to shelter the light from being blown out. And what this is saying when, when he says, no, don't put it under a bowl, put it under a stand, is that it's risky. It's risky to put that light on a stand because a gust of wind could come along and just blow it right out. Jesus is saying a radiant generation, a radiant church is willing to risk, is willing to take risks for the kingdom, is willing to take risks in mission, not to retreat in fear, not to pull back under the covers, just trying to, to cling to what we have and keep it for ourselves. We have lots of fears. We have lots of anxieties. But Jesus says, don't give in to them. Don't retreat. Don't pull back. Stand firm. Stand tall. See, living radiantly for Jesus is always risky, personally and together as a church. Lastly, a radiant church seeks holiness. Look in verse 35. He says, see to it, or pay careful attention then that the light within you is not darkness. There's this interplay between light and dark, and the message is clear. Don't let darkness sneak in. Don't let things go unrepented of and unrepaired. Don't let bad 
sinful habits come in and darken your vision. Repent, seek holiness, seek Christ's holiness, be vigilant and obey. We need to take sanctification seriously. Sanctification, that's just a fancy word for how God cleans us up. It's a fancy word for how Jesus cleans us up and we participate in how he cleans us up. We need to take it seriously because the radiance depends on it. The radiance depends on not having the darkness drawing away from what God wants to show of his radiance in our midst. And look at the result. Look at the result of all this. The result, if our darkness is not tarnishing, the radiance of Christ is that we too will be radiant. Look at verse 36. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Full of light, radiant, radiant, a radiant church. That's what he wants for us. A radiant life, that's what he wants for your life. And the emphasis in this is actually, there's power here. As I was studying all the different words for light in this section, what really interested me is that in verse 36, the last use of the word light actually means lightning. It's the word astrape. It means lightning. So on, on here, this is every use of the word in the New Testament. And in every other case, in Matthew and Luke and Revelation, it means lightning. And here Luke is saying, if, uh, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its lightning on you. It's not saying it's going to zap you, but here's what I think Luke is doing. Luke is saying that, that, that when, um, when we are, are others oriented towards others in love and generosity, when we take risks in the mission of Christ, when we seek purity, the radiance we display will be powerful. It'll be like a beam of light and people take notice. When lightning strikes, everybody takes notice. It lights up the sky. I think that's what he's saying. It's this incredibly hopeful picture and powerful picture of his design for us as his church filled and empowered with his spirit. In his book entitled, A Severe Mercy, author Sheldon Van Auken tells the story of how he and his, and his wife became Christians. They were deep thinkers coming up from a place of unbelief and skepticism. They were in university and they were tottering between belief and unbelief and maybe opening themselves to the first time to consider that, you know, this, this Christian thing might have something to it. And here's what he wrote in his journal as he was starting to meet Christians and as he was considering Jesus. He said, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument, the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then he says Christianity dies a thousand deaths. 
while he was tottering between faith and unbelief, he had experienced two very different pictures of what Christians were. Just like we're seeing two very different pictures in our text today. Some Christians were radiant and they drew him to the love of Christ and some weren't. So my question to us this morning is, which are we going to be? Which are we going to be? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your words and your challenge and your comfort. And I pray that your spirit would continue to speak to us as we move on out from here. May we be a radiant church full of light. May we shun the darkness. May we love people. And may we turn back to you daily to renew us in the grace of Jesus and to empower us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.